Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Nā mihi nui and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance tēnei. I hope you're all safe and well in your bubbles as week four of our COVID-19 lockdown gets underway. Later in the show, we'll pop into the viral archives to hear about breeding virus-resistant oysters. First up, though, welcome to A Beginner's Guide to Mathematical Modelling. As the coronavirus pandemic has raged around the world, it would be fair to say that most of us have become obsessed with numbers. The daily number of new coronavirus cases here in New Zealand, the number of deaths here and overseas, especially in heartache countries such as Italy and the United States. Over the past three months, governments and health services around the world have had to decide very quickly how to react to the rapidly growing health crisis. They turned to mathematicians and public health experts to find out what the consequences of different scenarios might be. In the United Kingdom, models developed by researchers at Imperial College in London and at Oxford University have been in the headlines. The Imperial College modelling was very influential early on in the UK government moving away from its original plan of herd immunity to much tighter controls, with the aim of flattening the curve and preventing hospitals being overwhelmed. Here in New Zealand, several research groups have been developing models that reflect the local situation. One group involves Michael Baker, Nick Wilson and others from the University of Otago. Another group from Teipunaha Matatini includes Sean Hendy and colleagues. On the eve of the Level 4 lockdown, this group released their first modelling, which they called Suppression and Mitigation Strategies for Control of COVID-19 in New Zealand. The paper showed that with early and strict intervention, it should be possible to suppress or put a lid on the infection rate here. To find out more, let's talk to Associate Professor Alex James. Alex is a mathematician from the University of Canterbury and she led that first modelling from Te Punaha Matatini. I begin by asking her what she worked on before COVID-19 took over her life. I'm a mathematical modeller. I work in a lot of different areas. For a lot of years I worked primarily in ecology, but probably I work in mathematical biology on the whole. And there's a lot of different types of mathematical modelling. And it varies from the very theoretical to the very applied. Now I do both ends, but predominantly I do the more applied end. So we're often thinking about, for example, in ecology, I'll be working with people at AgriSearch or uh, Monarchy Fenua, and they'll say, we've got this particular plant and we've got this particular biocontrol method for it. Is it going to work? 
you know, we've done some small tests, but we want to know, is it going to work? When we release this biocontrol method out into the world, is it, is it going to survive? Are we going to have to keep reseeding it? Is it going to work better than just going out and chopping down these weeds on a kind of daily basis? And so we'll think about what are the mechanisms that go on here? And we'll try and put those in a model. We're not always trying to predict exact numbers. So there is a school of mathematical modelling, um, which is often much more engineering dominated or very physics based, where you're often thinking, I want to know in two weeks' time, exactly how many will there be? Whereas we're often thinking, in two weeks' time, is it going to go up? Is it still going to be going up? Is it going to be going down? Will it kind of flattened off? It's more general questions like that, rather than very specific, exactly what will the number be? Predicting exactly the size of something at a given time is hard, especially for any system that I'm often interested in, which is often involves ecology or involves people or involves diseases spreading. Giving an exact answer is hard, but often we're just interested in, is it going to go down? And how long is it going to take to go down? Is it going to go down quickly or is it going to go down slowly? So these systems that you're interested in, it would be fair to say they're complex systems. Yes, they are very, very complex systems. But the art, so mathematical modelling, I, I believe it's an art and a science. And the art side of it is to think, I know this is complicated. I know there are a million different things going on here. But what are the most important ones? Can I boil this down to just two or three ideas and capture a lot of that complexity in a very small number of features and think about those features? So your mathematical model is acting a bit like a crystal ball. So we're at this current point of time and you want to know what's going to happen in the future, but you don't have a lot of data right now. Sometimes we have data, sometimes we don't have data. Taking the current situation we're in, in epidemiological models, so models of disease spread, we have one magic number. And so there's a lot of theory. I mean, people have been studying mathematics of diseases for years and years, and probably decades. And we've, we've realised in the very theoretical end of modelling that there's one key parameter that really matters. And we call it R0 in mathematical um, epidemiology. And R0 is, if I have an infection, how many people am I likely to infect whilst I'm ill? We know that for measles, that number's about 13 or 14. So if one person gets measles, on average, they'll infect 13 or 14 other people. That's a lot of people. For something like flu, you'll probably only infect one or two other people. And hopefully you can see that if on average I infect less than one person, well, this disease is going away because people with the disease will infect no people. Most people maybe infect one, occasionally someone will infect two, but on the whole, we're all infecting less than one person, so eventually this disease is going to go away. Whereas a disease with an R0 of, say, two or three, well, if we just leave it, it's going to get more and more people infected, so it's exponential growth. And we know from all the theory of disease spread that... There's a, a lot of very, very complicated things that go into our naught. It could be um, how many people do you see? How easy is it to spread the disease? Um, can I spread it to someone who stood next to me? Do they have to be right next to me or can I spread it to someone that I pass by in the park? How long do I need to be in contact with them to, in order to infect them? There's so many variables that go on into how I infect. But as a mathematician, we say, that's all great. But fundamentally, 
are naught, just this single number, is possibly the most important parameter. And we can say, well, we don't really know what R0 is for, for a particular disease. We don't know on average how many people somebody's going to infect. But we know if it's less than one, then eventually this disease will go away. And we know if it's more than one, then ultimately this disease will spread and most of my population could end up getting it. So we've got this one critical number, which I've seen in the media over the past few weeks being reported. And we're still floundering around a bit when it comes to COVID-19 as to what that number is. You're absolutely right. It's, it's one of the biggest questions that we're looking at at the moment is, you know, for COVID-19, what is that number? Diseases like measles have been around for years. People have been studying them for years and we've got a really good handle. We know for measles, it's about 13 or 14 people that you infect. But for COVID-19, we don't know. We're looking at the data that's coming out of other countries and we're thinking, you know, what are naught are they seeing? And then where they put in control levels, what are naught are they going to see? But again, there are so many complicated things going into what is or not. You say, well, you know, different countries um, behave very differently. Um, the Japanese behave very differently to the Europeans. And a lot of the um, Asian countries have very different cultures and very different social norms, which will change their r naught implicitly. If you live in a, a culture where everybody hugs each other when they meet, then diseases might spread very easily. If you live in a culture where people naturally stay further apart from each other, then it's harder for diseases to spread. And r naught will be less just naturally by the way you behave. So getting hold of these numbers is hard. But again, as mathematical modelers, we can take this into account. We can see from data it's roughly between these limits when people behave in this kind of way. For instance, we know that with all with the social distancing policies that so many countries are putting into place, we can see that on the whole, those policies are bringing our naught less than one. And we hope that that's what's happening in New Zealand as well. Um, so we're watching the data at the moment, uh, the daily cases data to see evidence of this. So as a mathematician, that's, that's what we're really interested in. Is it above one or is it below one? So you've been involved in creating a particular model. Uh, Sean Hendy and some others from Te Punaha Matatini have been working with you on this. Can you tell me a little bit about the history of that model and how you went about creating it? Well, I can definitely say models are things that evolve. You, you think about what's the question that I want to answer and you develop a model that's appropriate to answer that question. So the first question that we were thinking about in terms of the COVID-19 modelling was if this all goes horribly wrong, if we end up in the same situation that the UK, that the USA and, and Italy for a while and Spain were finding themselves in, where they couldn't contain the disease, then what would be the outcome of that? What would be the long-term outcome if this turned into a disease that did spread throughout the entire population? And um, so this is the worst case scenario. And to do that, we use a type of model with a very, very long pedigree. It's usually referred to as SIR models. So susceptible, infected, removed. This is a type of ordinary differential equation model. Um, I teach it to my third years at university. You can teach it to second or third year students at university. They're very, very simple models. And we call them deterministic models. So they say everybody behaves the same. Everybody in your population is behaving very similarly. And when you've got a lot of people, that works. It works really well. These types of models have been used for years to tell us what vaccination rates we need. So when you hear people talking about, uh, for measles, we need 95% coverage. We need 95% of people to be vaccinated against measles in order to stop measles outbreaks. Those figures come from very, very simple 
um, SIR models, the susceptible infected removed models. So again, health policies have been based on these models for years, but they are fundamentally about the worst case scenario. They're about what happens when a disease spreads through my community, more and more people become infected and then they become immune to it. So it's all that herd immunity. And those are the models that we started off with for COVID-19. They're the worst case scenario models. They're the ones that um, DHBs and health planners want to know about because they want to know if this all goes horribly wrong, if we can't get this disease under control, when is it going to peak? When am I going to need more ICU beds? When am I going to need more ventilators? How many more ventilators am I going to need? So that's where our model started off. These very, very pessimistic worst case scenario models, because these are the ones that countries need to put plans into action yeah, and to make us think if it turns out really badly, then how bad will it be and when will it be bad? And does this model then enable you to manipulate and try various uh, permutations of things? So, you know, if this number is smaller, what difference does that make to your prediction? If this number over here is bigger because it seems to be changing, this is going to have a different outcome. So you, you end up with a range of outcomes depending on what range of numbers you put in. Absolutely. That's exactly right. And again, the, the key number in these models really is it's r naught. Our North is the one that tells us this is the proportion of your population that will be infected when this disease has swept through your community and, you've, and you now have herd immunity. So the majority of many, many people have had it and are now immune to it. And that's the thing that's stopping it spreading. Because when I have the disease myself and I, and I go out and I infect somebody, lots of the people I infect are immune already. So I may be infecting on average two or three people. But if, if two of those are immune, well, I've only infected one person. Um, so that's what SIR models are based on. And yeah, we, we, we run it for various different scenarios. We think about what if we're all infecting a lot of people? What if um, it can sweep through very quickly? Um, and then down to more, so kind of our more pessimistic scenarios and more optimistic scenarios are ones where we see, well, actually, maybe, maybe our naught's smaller. Maybe we only affect maybe one and a half or two people each. And maybe this takes slightly longer than we think to happen. So less people will be infected overall, and it'll take slightly longer to sweep through. So what R0 did you choose to use in the model? We don't settle. We still haven't settled on a value of R0. We're actually putting together a publication as we speak where we've looked at every country, every country's data that's that's kind of worth looking at. So all the bigger countries, all the European countries, the USA, the UK, and we can use their, their case data and we can fit to that and we can say, what are not do we think that they have? And we can say, well, you know, Italy, for example, for the last three or four weeks has been under lockdown. And most you know, people haven't been moving around. They haven't been transmitting the virus to each other. And so we can say, what, what kind of R0 has Italy got under lockdown? Um, we can say, what kind of R0 has um, South Korea managed to achieve? So South Korea, they've done amazing work slowing down the virus spread. And they haven't closed schools. A lot of things are still open in South Korea. And suddenly Singapore is another place like that as well. But they're doing it by very, very fast contact tracing. So remember, there's different ways of stopping people spreading this disease. You can either catch people who are, who are becoming ill very, very quickly. And so they don't have time to infect a lot of people. Or you can make sure that people aren't meeting each other so that overall I meet less people. So that's, that's how I infect less people. So it's two quite different routes. But to a mathematician, it still boils down to this one number. What's the average number of people you're going to infect are naught? 
And yeah, so we're just tracking other countries and we're looking at the different measures they're putting in to reduce spread. And we're saying, what are not do we think they've achieved? And there's still a range. We are becoming confident that countries like Italy and Spain have managed to achieve an R0 of less than one. So this is the big thing. If everybody infects less than one person on average, then your disease slowly disappears. And that's why here in New Zealand we are going down the lockdown route. We're living in our little bubbles, so we're trying to get rid of the disease and have an R0 value that's significantly less than one. It's definitely what we're hoping for. It takes a while to see these things come through in data. This is a disease that once you've caught it, you probably won't become infectious for quite a few days. You'll then be infecting people for quite a few days. So it takes a long time to see these changes come into action. But the first signs are very, very hopeful, very optimistic. We think, yes, we we are able as a country to achieve our naught less than one. How much less than one? I wouldn't like to say yet, um, but, you know, if... We hope that if we're all following the the lockdown rules carefully and we're being very careful about our bubbles and we're all washing our hands a lot, then hopefully we will manage to get it quite a long way below one. Since that initial SIR model, Alex and her colleagues have been working on other kinds of mathematical models. They're using global data about coronavirus infections and death rates as they come to hand each day. These numbers are giving us a clearer picture of how the virus actually works and how many people it's infecting and killing. A paper titled A Stochastic Model for COVID-19 Spread and the Effects of Alert Level 4 in Aotearoa, New Zealand, came out late last week. It found that existing controls had already begun to have an effect by the end of March and that we might even be able to eliminate the disease, but only by continuing the lockdown beyond the initial four weeks. We've started looking at at more optimistic models, so these SIR models that I talked about. They're about this worst-case scenario, about diseases sweeping through communities, about herd immunity. There are other models we can use as well, usually um, stochastic models, so random models. Models that don't say, what's the average number? Models that say, well, I know this is the average, but also, how likely am I to only infect one person? I mean, some people get the disease and not infect any people at all. So... We can use stochastic models or random models that take all that into account as well. And those models are really useful at the stage we're on at the moment. So when you're at this stage where you're not really sure what R0 is, but you're fairly sure it's around one or hopefully much less than one, these are the models that you start using then. These models that track every individual who's got the disease and what's the probability they're going to infect somebody on each day. The SIR models we developed originally, they've done their job. They've given the DHB planners, they've given them worst case scenarios. But now we need to start thinking about if we're in a situation where it's all working really well, where we've got a really good containment strategy, could we even eliminate COVID-19? Could we actually become free of it? And if we were going to, how long might that take? These are the kind of questions that you can't give a date. But you can say, well, if we're lucky, it could be as early as this day. But if we're unlucky, it could be as late as this day. And these are the kind of things policymakers need to think about because keeping a country in under level four alert, under this level of restrictions for a very long time, that's got a lot of other effects. Uh, there's economic effects, there's health and well-being effects. And so this is the kind of advice that we can give to policymakers. We can say, well, might be this quick, but it also might be this slow. 
And as time evolves and we see more case data coming out, our predictions can get more exact. But at the moment, it, we can just give them ranges on how long, you know, how long these things would take if we choose to go down a route of elimination or containment. What level of containment would we like? Do we want to contain this disease to very, very low levels? Or do we want to contain it to slightly higher levels? And so levels where we're never going to reach hospital capacity. Can your model tell us what it would take to achieve elimination and how long that might take? We can do models that do that, yes. We can do them at all sorts of different levels. So we can think about the whole country. and We can think about particular regions. Is it feasible to eliminate the disease on South Island or just on North Island? Um, again, in order to do things like that, you've got to completely stop movement between the islands. And that, that's a big thing to do. And again, it's got big economic and well-being implications if you do that. Um, but yeah, it is. It's the kind of model that we're looking at. And again, we see our role as modelers to provide policymakers with information um, so they can make well-informed decisions. As a mathematical modeler, I know as much as the next person about the health and well-being implications of long-term lockdown. I would never feel it was my place to make decisions like that. But helping policymakers, so the people who really do know about this stuff, the people who are really thinking about this, our politicians, um, yeah, helping helping them be well-informed yeah, so they can make they can make decisions based on fact and, ev- and scientific evidence rather than maybe things that they just read in the paper. <laughs> now, I'm thinking there are other groups involved in providing modelling and advice to public policy experts at the moment, and I'm thinking in particular of Nick Wilson and Michael Baker at the University of Otago. So are they using similar kinds of models to you, and how does their work compare to yours? Yes, they're using similar models to us. Um, so we are, we're in contact with those groups. We're definitely not working in isolation. We know there are a lot of other people doing a lot of great work out there. And fundamentally, our models agree. As I say, mathematical epidemiology has been around for a long time. We might give slightly different answers. Again, if you, if you really want to focus on the, the details and say exactly what day will we reach 1,000 infections, then yes, the model from the people of Targo might give slightly different answers to ours. Because again, it's just a, a slightly different set of assumptions that have been in there. But, but I don't think any of the modelers would say you should use these models to that very, very minute level of detail. But it, the big picture of our models is, is, yeah, is always in agreement. I've been interested in that reading about some of the overseas models and there was some early work out of Oxford. There's some much talked about work out of Imperial College. But initially, those modelling efforts seem to have come up with a set of scenarios and and numbers that they then completely changed and did quite a U-turn on. I will say, yeah, models evolve. This is what we do. Models evolve. We look at the data. It's very, very hard to predict how people um, are going to react to things. If you'd asked me two or three weeks ago, can we get our naught less than one for this disease? I would have been sceptical. Um, I would have said, no, it's just, it's just not going to happen. People will still be going to the supermarket and we're not going to manage to get R0 less than one. And that's when we're using these big SIR models about the herd immunity that, you know, that give very pessimistic scenarios. But I've changed my mind. In the last couple of weeks, I've seen um, amazing data coming out of Spain, out of Italy. Um, I've seen these countries managing to change, um, change the, the course of the disease. I've seen New Zealand I've seen our data go from, um, you know, big rises in numbers. We've now flattened off in the last few days. Um, It's still early days, but 
I'm much more optimistic now that that we can contain this. We can definitely contain it. And, you know, whether we can eliminate it is a completely different question. Yeah, but I'm much more optimistic now that we can get our naught less than one. Um, and I think that's probably what the British researchers have been, been realising as well. Um, you know, we started off very pessimistic. Um, but as we see that, no, actually, you know, we really can do this as a nation. We can work together. We can all follow the rules and we can all stay in our bubbles and if they stay in our bubbles, wash our hands. And yeah, we can do this. So yeah, our models change. Um, you know, that's, that's science. Um, it's about looking at the evidence, the evidence that you're seeing and being able to change, being able to change what you believe. I read an interesting quote, which I think was by a statistician that said, all models are wrong, but some are useful. Yeah, George Box. George Box back in the 1960s, and he was absolutely right. Yes, all models are wrong, but yes, we hope that we can come up with models that are useful. And that's all we're trying to do here. If you wanted me to predict exactly how many cases there'll be tomorrow, no, I can't do that. But once I've seen how many cases there are, then I can start thinking about what's the long-term trend here. Is it going up? Is it going down? If it's going down, how fast is it going down? Thanks, Alex. Alex James is in the School of Mathematics and Statistics at the University of Canterbury, and she's also with Te Punaha Matatini. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tato au horihori, ki te reo erirangi o Aotearoa. I'm Alison Balance, and you're with Our Changing World. Now, I've been cruising around the Our Changing World's enormous archive of stories, which, by the way, is a great place to visit if you're looking for something to listen to during lockdown. My pick tonight is from 2013. I visited the Cawthorn Institute's Aquaculture Park in Nelson to hear about their programme to breed oysters that are resistant to the Austriad herpes virus, which at that stage was rather decimating the Pacific oyster industry. My guide was Nick King. So prior to 2010, we didn't really have problems with virus in New Zealand. We knew that the virus existed, but oysters in New Zealand were living with it. So we were able to run a breeding program here where we were producing good gain for growth rate and the sort of quality attributes that you know, make oysters worth more in the export markets. And then 2010, there were the first signs that something was going wrong out in the oyster environment. There were some mortalities, people didn't really know what was happening, and it wasn't until sometime later that people realised that it was actually the oyster herpes virus. And what we think is, has happened is that it's a either a different strain or something in the environment has changed that's made this virus suddenly have much greater effect on oyster production in New Zealand. It's been a problem overseas for a long time, but we'd, we'd kind of been living without it and always considering ourselves really lucky that we had such good oyster survival in New Zealand. Well, since that's happened, now we've had to completely refocus the breeding program to breed oysters that are resilient to the virus. And, you know, we don't expect this to happen overnight, and we may never get 100% resilient oysters, but it's a race against time to do the best we can to help the industry survive in the face of this challenge that they're living with now. So that race against time, you say, starts here in this room? In fact, it even starts before that. So the, the oyster farmers that we work with, they'll go out and they'll you know, look for the, the best-looking oysters in the areas that have been challenged the hardest, and we'll bring those back here. We'll take a mum-and-dad oyster, combine the eggs and sperm from those, and then we put them in the little tanks that we rear our oyster families in here. And typically, you know, one of those families consists of a whole lot of brother-and-sister oysters 
we grow them in the hatchery, we seed them out on farms, and then we see how they perform. And it's really how they perform in the very early days of their life that's important. So once the oysters are little spat that are maybe you know, the size of your thumbnail, they'll go out to the oyster farm. And those first sort of weeks or months, depending on the time of year, uh, that's the critical time. We'll go back and look at them once they're adults and look at you know, what their oyster quality looks like, what does the shell look like, the meat-to-shell ratio. Are they a good-looking oyster? Because it is still important. We bring those back into the hatchery and then we go through a whole another breeding cycle. So at the moment we're at the, at the point where we've, we've really only done one generation of selection for survival and the indications are that there are some promising genetic potential in those, in those lots. We've had some families that have survived quite well, others that have survived very poorly and that's kind of what we're looking for. We want to see differences and then we can take the good ones and breed from those. And, and once we've got those good oysters, then the next step is to bring them into the commercial production process. So have you got some of these promising oysters here? Are they something we can go and have a look at? We've got some oyster spat that have been produced from the first encouraging breeding lines, so we can go and have a look at those and see what they look like in the system. That'd be great. So what's the space that we've come into here, Nick? I guess we call this our early nursery. So the oysters, they, they start out as a, a little larvae, so they go through the swimming phase, which is really delicate, and that's what we do back in the oyster lab. That swimming phase lasts for about two weeks, and then they basically change their whole structure, what they look like. They turn into a little spat, which is like a small version of what you'd see growing on a rock. So once they're spat, the environment that they need is quite different. They don't need good quality food anymore. They can manage variation in water quality. So then we bring them over to the nursery here, and they sit in these containers that are called upwellers. And the reason they're called upwellers is that we have water that we're growing algae, and we're passing that water up through the spat. So it's upwelling through the spat. They're filtering out the algae, the goodness that they need, and then the water's sort of recirculated. They come over sort of the size of a match head or even smaller, and this just gives them the early start. So if I reach my hand in, I can just pull out these little things and... It's, like, know, it's almost like fine gravel. It is. It, 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 when they're small, it just looks like sand, but they're actually hundreds of little baby oysters. Thanks, Nick. That was Nick King from the Cawthorne Institute, and that was part of a story that first aired in 2013. You can find the full interview, along with many other stories, on the Our Changing World webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Stay in touch. We're on Facebook and Twitter at RNZ Science. Hope you're going well in your bubble. Stay safe and keep washing your hands. Many thanks for your company. But for now, it's good night from me, Alison Balance, Paul Marier. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. 
That's BotoxCosmetic.com. <laughs> 